it was really hard to make the decision to leave Hollywood because that had been my dream all my life. So I'm like, all right, I'll give seminary a shot. And uh, I was like, man, this is awesome. I get to learn this stuff. And so I was like, yep, I'm in the right place. I went on sabbatical for about three months. And after about two weeks of that sabbatical, I got a call from our executive presbyter. So he basically said, Marcus, someone has accused you of having a problem with pornography. I knew I didn't have anything to hide. So I said, well, do you need my laptop right now? And he said, that would be good. He said, well, Marcus, I can't give you your laptop back because I've had to hand your laptop over to the authorities and it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? You know, what could they possibly have found that would lead to that? Hey, y'all, this is episode R053 with Marcus Watson of the Spiritual Life and Leadership Podcast. Now, I said y'all for a reason because he's from California and a whole bunch of his friends, I hope, will listen to this. They're probably not used to mentioning Marcus Watson right alongside the word (laughs) y'all. Marcus is a former actor who decided to leave Hollywood and join the clergy. When he was falsely accused, though, his world fell apart. Marcus says the ordeal has brought him closer to his creator. In this episode, we're going to talk about the danger of blind outrage, especially among Christians, gossip, sexual abuse in the church, and spiritual transformation under fire. All kidding aside about the y'all, I am so grateful that Marcus chose to share so much of his reboot story with us. It takes grit to be this vulnerable. Have a listen. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down. Stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, Marcus, thank you for inviting us into your life today. It's been a pleasure to get to know you over the past week or so. Uh And just welcome to the Reboots Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Tell me what your life is like today, like a typical day or maybe even kind of your schedule today. What do you do? Uh Well, currently I'm the interim pastor at a small church in the Imperial Valley in California, a little town called Westmoreland. They're about two hours east of San Diego. I live in San Diego, and so I drive out there on Sunday morning, and uh, we do church, and then I'm there all Sunday afternoon and stay overnight until Monday. Uh, We have a Bible study on Mondays at noon. You know, I try to get as much work done during those two days as possible, and then I do uh, some work uh, during the week on, you know, sermon prep and those kinds of things. So that's as far as that part of my life goes. And then I've also got a podcast. So I do some of that work during the week, and I have other projects that I work on <laughs> throughout the week. So while we're talking podcasts, yeah. where where does someone find you and your podcast and your writing and your work and all of that? Yeah, yeah. My podcast is called Spiritual Life and Leadership, 
And um, basically what I like to do is I, I like to talk about the inner life and the outer life of leadership. The outer life in terms of you know how to be most productive, how to get things done, what are the right techniques, these are all good and really important and a part of leadership. And so some of uh, what I talk about on it uh, focuses on that. But then the other part is the inner life. And so I like to talk about where are we leading from, from a place of deep connection with God and a sense of calling and and not trying to you know help us be leaders who are not leading for our own sake or to make ourselves look good because I've been there and I've done it <laughs> you know worried about my reputation how good do I look as I'm leading but leading in a way that really cares about those that we're leading and uh, really cares about what God wants to do in the world and are we being a part of that yeah, so that's kind of what the podcast is about. Then uh, you can also find me on my website, marcuswatson.com, and it's Marcus with a K, M-A-R-K-K-K-K. Oh, not K-K-K. <laughs> no, 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 not three Ks. No, 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 no. no. Marcus with a K, marcuswatson.com. Okay, marcuswatson.com. There you go. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> well, so. so you've got a great voice for podcasting, oh, and I understand that you not only come by it naturally, uh -huh. but that that's sort of remnants of a previous career, sort of like me, right? Yeah. Only different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was in college, I worked at a Christian radio station in our, I used to live in Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh when I was sixth grade through college. So I, I got to work there for a couple of years. That was super fun because it's the station I'd grown up listening to. And then I was, one day I was like, I'm just going to apply for a job there and see what happens. And Man, radio is the best. I, I loved it. One of the best times of my life. Yeah, super fun. And then after college, I went and worked in Hollywood for a couple of years, which had been my dream, really. that That's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a, a movie director. When I was little, I wanted to be a movie star. And uh, I remember in sixth grade, we had to do a little art project where we cut out a picture of our head and then draw ourselves doing what we wanted to do be when we grew up. So I drew myself as James Bond on a TV screen, shooting bullets at somebody going, ha ha ha. <laughs> so that was my dream. And then I got a little older. I was like, no, actually, I want to be a director. Anyway, so after college, I did get into Hollywood working as a production assistant, which is bottom of the totem pole, you know, go get coffee. It's do whatever they tell you to, right? You assist in the production, whatever way they need assistance, right? So anyway, uh, but that was fun. I got to work on um, a couple of TV specials. I got to work on a Muppets video. That was really fun. Nice. You know, shook hands with lots of celebrities who were a part of this. And anyway, really, really fun experience. But after a couple of years, just kind of developed a love-hate relationship with Hollywood. You know, I, I loved mm. the stuff we were doing, but it was just, there's a, a vibe, you know, there's an aura, there's a, a feeling of, it's just not healthy. And um, there's definitely a sense of hierarchy and the people at the bottom are treated like they're at the bottom, which was kind of my experience. And then those at the top are worshipped. And I, I had this experience mm. where I was supposed to deliver a script to the host of this show, this TV special that I was working on, and I delivered it to the wrong place. I kind of slipped it under the door. I thought it was the right place. And this was before email and all that, you know. Then I drove back, and they're like, you took it to the wrong place. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, you know. And they're like, you can't make mistakes like this. You know, this guy, he's a star. And then they said, well, 
he's not a star, but he is a celebrity. And I'm like, oh, so there's a hierarchy there. Oh, interesting. (laughs) No, this was a guy who was like a secondary character on NYPD Blue at the time. Anyway, that was eye-opening. And so then after, I don't know, a couple years of that, I just came to the conclusion that I'm like, I don't... I just don't belong here, I don't think. And so it was really hard to make the decision to leave Hollywood because that had been my dream all my life. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. And so I I liken it to cutting off my arm. You know, I cut off some things that had been with me all my life. And so I said, well, then I don't know what to do, but I'll either go on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, which I'd been involved with in college, or I will go get a master's degree in communication at a Christian university, or I'll go to seminary. And I lived in LA, uh, not too far from Fuller Seminary. And so I looked into all three. I could do Campus Crusade or master's degree in communication by the following January. This was uh, summer of 96. and uh, Or I could get into Fuller Seminary that fall. So I'm like, all right, I'll give seminary a shot. And uh, I just remember the first day of class, my first day of class was patristic theology with John Thompson. And he's, well, first of all, we started with prayer. And I was like, oh, wow, we pray here, right? This is a seminary, not, you know, (laughs) state university. So that was great. And then he just started talking about, right, patristic theology, theology of the early church fathers. I was like, man, this is awesome. I get to learn this stuff. And so I was like, yep, I'm in the right place. This is where I need to be. So that was kind of my first reboot. It's my smaller reboot, but it was a significant reboot because it did change the trajectory of my life. But yeah, I went further than you wanted me to. Maybe No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> the, the questions are open-ended on purpose, oh, good, my brother. Good. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. What did you kind of envision as you decided, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with the Hollywood thing? Yeah. What did you think your life was going to mm. be like after uh-huh. you finished seminary? And Yeah. So after I finished seminary, and it took me a couple of years to embrace the idea of being a pastor too. My dad's a pastor, and I love my dad. He's a great dad, but that was like his thing, you know? And then for me, I'm like, that's not me. I, I want to do like maybe a media ministry. Anyway, eventually... I was able to embrace that for myself as well. And so my thought, you know, I just thought, well, I'm going to be a pastor for the rest of my life. And I'm going to go be an associate pastor for a few years, which I did. And then I'm going to go be a senior pastor uh, at another church and hopefully be there until I retire. And that's kind of what I envisioned. So, you know, my first ordained position was an associate pastor at Union Presbyterian Church in Union, Kentucky. And then I was there for about three and a half years, and then I came uh, here to San Diego and uh, was a senior pastor, or solo pastor, but pastor, head pastor of uh, this church here. Well, I've got several friends who who are pastors, and mm-hmm. it's not one of those things I'm saying just to make you think I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and what's fun about the pastors that I know, or former pastors that I know, is a lot of them... You would never think they're pastors Mm. unless you ask them what they do. And then I have one friend who's been in the ministry for, I don't know, 35, nearly 40 years. Mm -hmm. And he did. He started when he was like 17 or something like that. And he never tells people when they ask what he does for a living, he never says, I'm a pastor. He just says, I'm a teacher. 
Sorry, he says what? He says I'm a He says I'm a teacher. Oh, a teacher. Okay, good. Yeah. Cuz he says hmm. then there's just this whole thing and they stop behaving like themselves yeah, and yeah, they yeah, start yeah. to get uncomfortable and then it's just this they think I'm a fuddy daddy. Yeah, right. Right. So so that's kind of the impetus of of this next question okay. is some of my friends who are pastors or former pastors mm-hmm. they're like I just want to teach. I didn't know I had to deal with people. Yeah, and right, others are right, the opposite. Right. They're like, I don't want to t- prepare a sermon every week. Right. I just want to love on people. Yeah, yeah. So which one are you? Uh, I love preaching. I really do. I love studying the scriptures and the commentaries and pulling all these ideas together and then sitting with it for a little bit and then the shape of the sermon and the message comes together and then presenting it, you know, and, and preaching it and seeing people smile and laugh and nod and frown, you know, and the questioning, wondering looks like, hmm, that's probably the most, for me, the most life-giving part of what I do. I, I just love, I love preaching. It's, it's hard work and, and I need breaks from it for, for sure. You know, I, I try to not go more than six weeks in a row without taking at least one week off but I love it. Yeah. Man, that is, that's magnificent self-care, mm, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I learned that from just in, in the process of getting healthier over the last few years. Pete Scazzaro wrote a great book, right? Called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And as I was reading that book and developing a rule of life for myself, that was one of my, a part of my rule of life. Just take a break every six weeks, like a Sabbath from, uh, from preaching. Yeah. How long do you usually spend every week on building your sermons? I have the joy now of recycling some sermons. <laughs> so nice. That's why I love that. But you know, but they're always fresh because I, I spend a lot of time internalizing my sermons, uh, going over them out loud in part, and then just quietly as I'm driving around, just talking through it in my head. So there's probably about four or five hours of preparation, even when I'm not writing a whole new sermon. When I do wow. write a new sermon, what I do is I just take a full day, start at you know nine in the morning and shoot to be done by five in the afternoon. And I have kind of a process of what I need to have accomplished by certain times throughout the day to make sure that I've got it done then. And it works. How often do you start from scratch? So when I was in my last church, it was every every week. And now wow. I'm in, as an interim pastor, I can kind of say, well, this is a sermon series that I think would really help uh, this church. And so now I'd say it's probably about once a month or so. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to be preaching a sermon on the prodigal son coming up. And in my last series, I preached all those sermons, wrote them all, except I had a guest for one of them. And so this time around, I'm going to you know write that sermon and uh, preach that. So, But they're always new. Right. And it's a new experience every time because God's doing something new every time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've kind of walked through your small R mm-hmm. reboot. Yeah, yeah. And you and I have talked enough offline to know that there is a capital R yeah. reboot. Yeah. So let's kind of ease into that. And I and I appreciate you wanting to talk about this mm-hmm. and being willing to talk about it because this is not going to be easy for you. Yeah. So you're doing just fine and mm-hmm. love and teaching. Yep. You've kind of working your way toward or close to your dream job. Yeah. Tell me about that church yeah. and how things were going. Yeah. So things were great for about seven and a half years. Uh, we're a Presbyterian church. And like most mainline churches, we weren't growing. It was It's hard to grow a mainline church. But... 
we were growing younger. We had young families coming. You know, some of the older folks were moving on. Things were good. Had a good staff, had good people who were supportive and loved me and I loved them and uh, just never expected what was about to happen. Yeah. So what happened? Okay. Well, here we go. So 2015, I went on sabbatical for about three months. And after about two weeks of that sabbatical, I got a call from our executive presbyter. Uh, He was guest preaching for the first three weeks of my sabbatical. And I was like, oh, I hope everything's okay. So I answered the phone, of course, you know, and he said, hey, Marcus, I need to get together with you this weekend. Are you going to be around? And I was like, well, no, I'm actually going to be up in LA visiting some friends and my brother. And he's like, well, can you reschedule that? I'm like, well, what do you need to talk about? Well, I can't tell you. I was like, oh, well, and so that stirred up some frustration. I'm like, well, no, I'm not going to reschedule this trip just for something that I don't even know what it is. Anyway, we did end up uh, scheduling to meet on Sunday. So he came over to my house and uh, basically said, Marcus, someone has accused you of having a problem with pornography. And I said, oh, okay. Look, full disclosure, it's not like I've never seen pornography in my life. And I know that this is a struggle for men in general. For years, I'd had accountability software on all my devices, on my computer, on my phone, Mm. on my iPad. Uh, One of the other pastors here in San Diego is uh, my accountability partner. I knew I didn't have anything to hide. So I said, well, do you need my laptop right now? And he said, that would be good. So I said, okay. Now, what he also shared was that the person who had made the accusation didn't want to file formal allegations. And so he said, but I think we need to look into this. So I was like, well, I don't want to look like I'm trying to hide something, right? So I just gave him the, the laptop right away. He said a forensic analyst was going to take a look at the laptop. Uh, it would take a few days. Well, a few days turned into a few weeks, and uh, that was very frustrating. And I felt a little bit like, you know, my rights were being violated. Uh, that We have a process in our denomination, if someone files formal allegations with a the presbytery, they create an investigative committee, and then they investigate the allegations, and then the committee decides whether or not to file formal charges, which then could lead to a trial. Anyway, but none of that was being followed. And so about three weeks later, he called me and he said, well, Marcus, I can't give you a laptop back because I've had to hand your laptop over to the authorities and it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I was like, what, Mm. what are you talking about? You know, what could they possibly have found that would lead to that? So let me, if you don't mind, let me kind of stop right here because if you had uh, software on your devices that would have triggered your accountability team, Uh then, you know, it's like, I understand why you would say you felt like your rights might have been violated because if the person wanted to file formal charges, Mm -hmm. then okay, let's go. But you volunteered even before the informal investigation had an opportunity then to interview your accountability team. Is that, am I understanding that right? That's right. They never actually interviewed my accountability partner before uh, as as part of that first investigation. Although I will Mm. say that he's also a good friend and he really went to bat for me. He's another pastor in this Presbyterian, went to bat for me and wrote emails and had meetings on my behalf in ways that I couldn't have for myself, you know? So is it generally common these days to have systems like that in place to protect you in cases like this? Or was this Mm -hmm. unique to 
your agreement with the church where you were. Yeah. So this was just my own personal agreement okay. for my own spiritual yeah. health. Good for you. Good. Uh, yeah. So there is no requirement for pastors to have that. I think, however, everyone should, certainly male yeah. pastors, because, you know, the reality is even if you're not looking for pornography, there I mean, there are websites you might accidentally go to, type in .com instead of .gov or something, and end up on a porn site like, oh, whoa. And that's never happened to me. Someone told me, anyway, so I, I t tell the truth when I say someone well, told me about that happening. But, man, it's dangerous, you know? Well, it is. And through recovery, I know of a lot of people who struggle with this. Mm -hmm. And here's my view of that. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do for a living, there is no shame in someone having a problem right. and inviting an accountability yeah. team to make sure that that does not happen. Right. right. Because it this is about making yourself vulnerable mm -hmm. enough to keep you out of the ditch. And yeah. that's what community is that's for. Right. That's right. And, and vulnerability, yeah, is uh, so important for, I think, for our a healthy spirituality, our healthy, healthy, just healthy life, healthy humanity. We all have yeah. junk and yeah. not everybody needs to know 100% of our junk, right. but we have to have a, a team of a few people in place or one or two yeah. who everybody knows our junk. And right. I'm not saying that's you. I'm kind of sure. going off on, sure, a, sure. on a little, someone who's thinking, oh, pornography yeah. is horrible. Well, it can be, mm -hmm. but it can be managed and dealt Absolutely. with. And so good for you. Yeah for being proactive and saying, you know, I just want to have this thing in place. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, he tells me that, um, potential criminal investigation, and this just led me into a really, really dark time. And uh, my entire, it was a three month sabbatical. The remaining nine weeks of that were just really, really dark. And I was afraid because I didn't know what the future held. I didn't even know what they were investigating me for at this point. And I was thinking, did someone, uh, unfortunately, the tech guy at our church had become kind of my, um, a nemesis is maybe too strong a word, but not a fan of mine. And, you know, every once in a while, he'd work on my computer or something. And I'd be like, did he plant something? Now, it turns out he didn't, mm. thank goodness. But, well, you know. But those kind of questions will kind of drive you nuts, right. won't they? It's those questions. Sure. So, uh, eventually, I met with an attorney, a friend of my friend, actually, uh, accountability partner said, you need to go talk to a lawyer just to protect yourself. And so my wife and I went and talked with uh, with an attorney. And this was a moment of grace uh, in this whole process because we talked with her for about a, an hour. And she, uh, we didn't know this. She had some background with child pornography because, of course, I'm thinking, did they find child pornography? I didn't. I've never looked at child pornography. Did someone plant something there or or what? Uh, we're talking with her and she says, well, here are the things that are going to happen if if it is found on your computer. And and she's really painting kind of a worst case scenario. And then after about an hour, she goes, well, I can tell you're not guilty. I said, oh, how can you tell? Mm. And she said, you're not asking the right questions. If you're guilty, you'd be asking questions like, you know, how much time am I looking at? What's our defense going to be? And you're just asking when you can get mm. your laptop back. I was like, oh. Wow. Yeah. I was like, thank you. Thank you. Somebody can see. So she was clearly. testing yeah. you, wasn't she? Yeah. And I didn't realize she was doing that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And she turned out to be a real blessing. She made phone calls and wrote emails pro bono, which was wow. wonderful. Yeah. She said, if I ever have to meet with you in person, then I'll start charging you for now. 
I just wanted you to get some justice. And so that was really mm-hmm. good. So she's the one who found out that it was the FBI who had my laptop. You know, I just about fell off my chair when I found out that I was being investigated by the FBI. Never in a million years would I have imagined that that's what was going on. And I found that out near the end of my sabbatical. So this was now, you know, like late June, early July of that year. And uh, and at the same time, I contacted our executive presbyter and I said, hey, look, I don't know if I'm getting my laptop back anytime soon, but I'm going back to work soon and I need to at least get some of my files so I can go back to work, right? Nobody else supposedly knew anything about- Yeah, because there was no need to suspend you until the investigation was complete. You were on sabbatical. So I had a a laptop I could borrow, which was good. And he said, okay, yeah, I think I can get some of your work files. And so I met with him and he handed me a little flash drive. He said, hey, just want to let you know off the record, they said they haven't found anything. And looking back, I started reflecting on my response. My response was just like, okay, thanks. You know, and I was like, how come I didn't say, oh, thank goodness. And I was like, well, because I guess like you knew that, of course they didn't find anything. Right. Anyway. So that was near the end of my sabbatical. Now I will say before, before that I had this moment because I was, I really was really scared and um, I had a lot of time to reflect and pray, uh, time for silence and solitude because I was on sabbatical, lots of reading, great books that I had already planned to read before any of this was, uh, any of this started. Pete Scazzaro's book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which I mentioned to you. I read uh, Life of the Beloved by Henry Nowen, Abba's Child by Brendan Manning. Oh man, that is an awesome book. Yeah. And then David Benner. Oh, I'm forgetting the name of the book now. Uh, Surrender to Love, that's what it's called. Anyway, all these books about receiving God's love, right? Which is exactly what I needed during this time. And this really messed with my sense of self-worth because part of what I mm-hmm. kept thinking is like, well, this wouldn't happen to one of the big church pastors. You know, we're one of the smaller churches. They wouldn't do it to so-and-so or so-and-so, this unofficial investigation, but they'll do it to me from little old my church. Mm-hmm. And so self-worth, but being reminded through these books, you know, that I'm God's beloved, I'm God's beloved. And I had this moment where I was sitting on my patio, you know, I'd been spending some time reading the scriptures, silence, prayer, and and I had this moment where I all these worst case scenarios started just coming to my mind. And I just thought to myself, man, I could. The chatterbox. Yeah. 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 And I thought, man, I could, I could lose my job. I did eventually. And I thought I could lose my ordination, right? I, I could lose my reputation. I could be that pastor that, oh, well, you know what happened to him. You know, I could lose my family if it looks like I'm really guilty of something. I don't really think I would have, but you know, that's where my my mind went. Oh, sure. Or I could become a registered sex offender for the rest of my life. Mm. And of course, and then I'm thinking, I won't even be able to move anywhere without everybody knowing, you know, this kind of thing. And then I thought I could go to prison. And um, I had this just image in my mind of myself sitting in a prison cell, having lost everything, my job, my ordination, my family, my reputation. And then it's like I heard God say, but you will never lose my love for you, Mm. right? That's the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. Mm. And um, I had believed in God's unconditional love before that, but it's like in that moment, it became more real than I had ever experienced it before. And 
I'm grateful I didn't actually have to lose all of those things, but I felt like I was losing them in that moment. Sure. Yeah. And so that was a really transformative moment for me. And um, it changed my priorities in ministry from how do we get this church to be bigger and more people to show up and even get people to believe the right things. It's like, I don't, I probably believe some wrong things, but I don't think getting people to believe all the right things is, is what we need. What we need is to help people know that they are God's beloved. And um, Henry now in, in Life of the Beloved says something like this, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, when you discover yourself to be God's beloved, all you want is for everybody else to know that they're God's beloved too. And so- Say that one more time. Uh, when you discover yourself to be God's beloved, all you want is for everyone else to know that they are God's beloved too. Wow. Yeah. And so that, I found that, that that's what happened. I just want people to know that they're God's beloved, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter how good or how bad they are, they are God's beloved. And that's the most important thing anybody needs to know about themselves. Wow. So the FBI still has your computer yep. and you get kind of an informal word that they haven't found yep. anything. Yep. So then what happened? Yeah. So a few days before I went back to work, I got a text from our executive presbyter who, who at this point had announced his resignation. He was moving totally unrelated to any of this, but he was moving. And I was, I'll be honest, I was kind of glad about that. <laughs> um, because <laughs> he, it became a very tense relationship. Sure. He said, I have your laptop. When do you want to pick it up? I said, I'll be there this afternoon. And then uh, my friend, uh, Kevin, my accountability partner, he said, well, why don't you contact your attorney and see if there's anything you should ask when when you get it. And so she said, you should not be in contact with him because this is a legal thing now. You're under investigation and we need to get confirmation that this investigation is closed. There should be no contact between you and the executive presbyter. I was like, oh yeah, right. And so I emailed him that and I said, you know, because this is an open investigation, blah, blah, blah. And he responds with four words, Marcus, what investigation? and then signed off with his name. And I was like, what? And I was so angry. It's like, well, you're just going to pretend like this never happened? Like, you're just going to sweep it under the rug? Anyway, that was very hurtful and very painful after everything I'd just been through. So he ended up not giving me the laptop. He gave it to his attorney, to the presbytery's attorney, and uh, he held on to it. And then finally, my, my attorney called me a few weeks later and said, hey, I'm giving you the green light. You can go pick up your laptop now. So I did. Got it. And then I, I made an appointment with our stated clerk, which is another presbytery staff person after our executive presbyter had left. And I said, hey, I just want to make sure this is done. Like, what's the status of this thing? Now, I have my laptop. It seems like it's done. She said, it's done. It's over. Nothing else to worry about. I was like, great. Thank you. Literally two days later, I got a notice hand delivered to me from the presbytery stating that now formal allegations had been filed, this time not just including pornography, but also child pornography. Mm. And I was just like, oh my gosh, Lord, what is what is going on? You know, I thought we were done. And just all that fear again coming back to me and um, I had to go before a panel from the judicial committee or whatever for the Presbyterian. And that was, that was really scary, but at the same time turned out to be a blessing because the the chair of that little panel 
after some discussion, they went out, they deliberated, came back in, and he said, well, the good news is the decision they were supposed to make is, do I need to be put on administrative leave, right, based on the allegations? And uh, he said, we're not putting you on administrative leave. And look at, here's what we've determined. He shows me the determination. Basically, he said that the person who is making these allegations has no personal knowledge of any activity on my computer or, or myself personally. It was basically based on, well, since it went to the FBI, then there must be something there, even though the FBI determined that there wasn't anything there. (laughs) So, Mm. and so I was like, okay, that was another moment of grace. Okay. So they're actually, nobody actually has any kind of evidence that, or, or any kind of substance to anything that they're accusing me of. Uh, Cause I, again, I'm like, what does somebody have something that looks like I've, I, I even thought through, have I ever spent time alone with a child in my office? No, I, I don't think I ever have like a moment where, you know, where during vacation Bible school, you maybe, you know, I'm like, no, I, I haven't. Have you since found out why someone would accuse okay. you of such a thing? I, I have. So, and now we can kind of fast forward a little bit more because, so what that did was it led into a formal investigation with an investigative committee in our presbytery, and they also found that there's no evidence to support the allegations. So what I did find out was that the person who made the accusations was our preschool director, and someone had overheard her saying, you know, I was telling my pastor, meaning me, about my husband's pornography problem, and he just didn't respond the way I thought he would respond. And I don't know what she was expecting necessarily. I'm not sure how I responded. I But whatever it was, it wasn't what she wanted. And so she said, I bet he's got a problem with that too. And then it was literally within a few weeks that she had gone to the Presbyterian and said, you know, whatever she said. I don't know exactly what word she said, but made the accusations. So that's kind of where it stemmed from. And then eventually she made the same accusations to our board of elders. Uh, We call it a session. And, um, And so then we had to deal with that the session. And I presented a timeline of everything that had happened to our elders. And then my friend, uh, Kevin, my accountability partner came with me and said, Hey, look, I can show you years of accountability reports demonstrating uh, (laughs) Marcus, the internet use that Marcus has and, and all that. And a new executive presbyter came and he was supportive. He said, you know, as far as the presbytery is concerned, this is a closed matter. And so that was good. And so, but you've heard that before. Well, that's right. Uh, <laughs> so at some point, you either left or were asked to leave yeah. just because of the tension? So the, the session actually came out. They were very supportive of me in that meeting. And they said, Marcus, you have our trust as our pastor. But one of the elders, for whatever reason, decided to believe the allegations. And so she started going around making phone calls, telling people that Pastor Marcus has a problem with child pornography. Mm. And we didn't know that for a few weeks, but then gossip spreads. And so eventually we started hearing, oh my gosh, people are hearing this. And so we said, we got to have like a town hall meeting. And so I said, look, this is what's happened. These are the allegations that have been made. And then a few other folks spoke in my behalf. We had a big Q&A time for the whole congregation. That meeting ended fairly, I mean, well enough. People, some came up, gave me hugs, said, I'm so sorry. Others left with scowls on their faces. And before I even got home uh, that afternoon, someone called me on my phone and said, Marcus, I just want to let you know, someone called me and said, come to next week's congregational meeting. We're going to vote Marcus out. Mm. And so I 
I was prepared for it when it happened. It was amazing how many people showed up for that meeting. Our attendance <laughs> those two weeks was higher wow. than it had been in in years because people will come out for a scandal, right? So anyway, yeah, that uh, April 17th, 2016, mm. congregation voted to dissolve their relationship with me by a margin of two votes, right? So it was wow. not a significant majority by any means. Wow. So there are four specific topics that I kind of want to do mm. a little rapid fire on that that are kind of hot topics. You're viewing a lot of hot topics of sexual abuse in the church mm. from a whole different standpoint. Yeah. And I don't want to do like rapid, rapid fire because uh -huh. these are sensitive topics, yeah. but I want to get your take on four different topics sure. as quickly as we can, because I know that you've got places to sure. go and people to see and things to do. Sure. So let's talk about how blind outrage in the church mm. has impacted your life, your family, and your career. Yeah, yeah. Blind outrage is a good expression because it was certainly blind, but it, that's what happens, right? We, we tell stories then create narratives in our minds of, oh, this must be what happened. But it really did broke something inside of me. Mm. It was hard for our family. and. My my kids don't really know. They know that things ended at that church. My oldest is 14, and I'll probably explain to him what happened sometime in the next couple of years or so. But my wife, of course, walked with me through that whole thing, and it was really hard. We made it through okay, thank goodness, but it really hurt the congregation. Half the congregation left after that um, because you know half believed it, half didn't essentially, right? I feel sad. I mean, I love that church. And some of the folks who are still there were, are good people. I imagine some of them said, well, I'm not really sure what to believe, so I better vote to not have Pastor Marcus be here anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it, it really hurt the ministry of that church, but it also just sort of turned my life upside down in terms of who am I and what am I supposed to do now, you know? And, and even financially, mm -hmm. my income hasn't been, <laughs> it's been about half of what it, it was then, you know, and I'm, you know, but God has provided, thank goodness. I mean, always. And, um, I'm grateful for that, but it just, it just messed everything up, messed up all my plans. I wanted to be there at this church till I retired. I wanted to grow it into a big church. And I will say that part of what I've gotten out of this experience is a, a new priority in terms of what really matters in ministry. One of which mm -hmm. is, I already mentioned, you know, wanting people to know that they're God's beloved. I don't really care one lick anymore about how big my church is. Mm -hmm. One of the gifts of being at the church that I'm at right now in Westmoreland, California, a tiny little church. It's in a town of 800 households. It's not going to grow, right? So I feel no pressure. I mean, might, we might pick up a few people, but it's, I mean, the town itself is smaller than some churches, you know? <laughs> so mm -hmm. what I care about now is, are we being the people of God that we're called to be in this particular place at this particular time? If we are, then that's success, right? So it caused me to redefine what does success look like? And bigger and better does not define success. What's your take on gossip in the church? Like the difference between no kidding, formal, structured investigations yeah, yeah. that in your case were welcome yeah. versus just vicious 
rumors and gossip. Yeah. Well, clearly, gossip is incredibly destructive because it was destructive <laughs> to me. Uh, sometimes I, I try to put myself in the place of of those who might have heard those rumors. You know, we believe all kinds of stuff. You know, when we hear it, I just heard one. Uh, you know, an NBA coach uh, was being sued for sexual assault, and of course, my first thought is, "Wow, what did he do?" And maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But that's that, that's Luke Walton, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, but I don't know yet if it's true. Uh, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. If it is true, then I hope there's justice. And if it's not true, then I hope there's justice. Right? There's this tension between we should believe people when they say I've been victimized in this way. Uh, but I think we have to just be patient and not condemn and not dehumanize. Right? The danger is is when we start dehumanizing someone, even if they are guilty. You know what? They're still God's beloved. And that's the single most important thing about even the victimizer, right? They're God's beloved. God never stops loving even those who've done terrible things. So I think one of the things that it has done for me is that even though I, I never got in trouble per se, other than losing my <laughs> my church, but I can feel a little bit more what those who who are being accused of things would be feeling like I know what he feels like right now. And at least in part, if they're guilty, there's probably more fear than what I had. Because if I had been guilty, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I hope they don't find what I've got. You know, if they are guilty, I imagine there's even more fear because they feel like I hope they don't find what what happened. But so what's your take on sexual abuse in the church? I mean, it's so yeah. easy to now go the other extreme and say abusers have gotten away with things for a long time yeah. due to, no kidding, cover-ups. Yeah. Well, sexual abuse is never, ever, 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 ever okay. And if there are victimizers in the church, then there has to be justice. No question about that. But there should be thorough investigations. and. You know, just make sure that the allegations are true. And I know that a lot of times they are true. And when that happens, yeah, you can't have someone like that in a position of spiritual leadership. They need to find their own healing, but it's never, never okay. I can tell that your life is different. Mm -hmm. And I wrote down something you said a few minutes ago, mm -hmm. blind outrage just broke something mm -hmm. in you. Mm -hmm. But I also hear in your voice and through the wonders of te technology, I mm -hmm. see yeah. through video that what our listeners can't see, I see a, a guy who's at peace. Mm -hmm. Tell me how this has impacted your life moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. At peace is a good way to put it. Not that I never have any anxiety about anything. I certainly do. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it certainly put things in perspective for me because I was afraid of losing, as I mentioned, everything, right? And since then, it's not that I'm not afraid of losing. I'm just not as afraid, I guess. Mm. God has been faithful through all of it. He led me. You know what's crazy is the next day I was on, after getting voted out, I was on an airplane to Little Rock, Arkansas for a week-long pastor's conference that had been on my calendar for six months. That's right down the road for me, my brother. Oh yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, Lord, you knew, you knew I was going to need that this week. And uh, it was a really healing 
experience that week. And I was not, believe it or not, I was not the only person at that conference who had been voted out that same day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there was some commiserating and a prayer for each other. And, you know, God was faithful. And then a few weeks later, he led me to a wonderful nonprofit ministry called Flourish San Diego that I got to work for for about two years. And it was new. It was really healing to not be in charge for a couple of years, you know, and um, to be myself led by a good friend who had started this organization a couple of years earlier. And then, you know, when the time was right, I felt like, okay, I think I could go back into a church. And there's a part of me, I really love blessing, heal, helping churches. I still love the church. I've never stopped loving the church. I, I think St. Augustine, sometimes I get nervous quoting this because I, I hope it's an accurate quote, but St. Augustine, I think, said something like, the church is a whore and she is my mother. <laughs> you know, <And> I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So yes, I've experienced both of those. The people of God are the light of the world and they can be they can bring darkness too right when there's unhealth in a local congregation but i want to be a part of bringing healing and wholeness into congregations so that they can then bring healing and wholeness into the world i like to think of it in terms of participating with god in god's mission and i think of god's mission as restoring shalom in the world shalom is peace, but like this comprehensive state of well-being that touches every aspect of life, spiritual peace, spiritual shalom, or well-being, spiritual well-being, uh, physical well-being, emotional well-being, financial well-being, right? Dealing with poverty. God wants to restore shalom in every aspect of life. And that, I want to help churches become outposts of God's kingdom who are restoring shalom in their communities. And that involves, you know, bringing some healing inwardly in those congregations, but then also casting a vision for what might God want to do through you now, you know, and and helping them to love each other well, right? And that comes, I think, through knowing that they're God's beloved. That's a big part of it anyway. Yeah. But oh my gosh, that's so hard, Marcus. I have for years looked for an exclusion clause mm -hmm. to... Jesus' command to love one another, mm. and I I haven't found one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I get it. I've been looking for a long time. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I, I have a heart. When I think of those people, and there are several right, who were involved in what happened to me, some intentionally, some unintentionally, but some viciously, some less viciously, but I have a hard time loving them. I mentioned Pete Scazzaro again on his podcast. He said, are you able to to pray for your enemies? And I was like, oh, God, this is about a year ago, maybe. I was like, oh, gosh, Lord, no, not yet, but okay, I'm going to try. So I go through the motions of praying for my enemies. And, you know, every time it's a little bit easier. And uh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a process and it's a journey. And there is healing. You compare it to crucifixion and resurrection, right? Jesus still carries the wounds of the crucifixion, even though he is alive, right? And um, we go through something like this, and it was traumatic for me. I know there are people who have been through far more traumatic things in their lives, but I carry those wounds with me. But it's the wounds that, that ground you and that make the resurrection that much more powerful. Yeah. There's a Brennan Manning quote. It's kind of a lengthy quote, but it talks about how 
how once we recognize our own abject poverty, Mm. life gets better. And I'm butchering this, Uh but it's better for us to put ourselves there so that, number one, we can rely on Christ. Mm. And number two, because other people are going to put us there anyway. Mm. Ryan Holiday has, has a quote where he says, uh, the world is at best indifferent to me. Mm. Yeah. But wow. as believers, we get to put a but in there. Uh-huh. There's a conjunction that says, but God loves me, period. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. Uh, is there anything that you would like to say as we close and let you get back to a beautiful day in San Diego? Yeah. Thank you for this opportunity to share my story. This is the first time I've shared it publicly. I've shared it privately a lot. And I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to just for myself personally, however God leads from here. Well, just thank you to you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for making yourself vulnerable. I know this hasn't been easy for you. I appreciate your story. Thanks. Hey, Marcus does a tremendous job with his podcast, Spiritual Life and Leadership. One of my favorite recent episodes is episode 41. It's the law of the splintered paddle. And Marcus actually recorded this, I believe, while he was on vacation or right after he got back and was inspired by his vacation in Hawaii. Hey, thanks for listening to the Reboots podcast. If you're navigating change of your own volition or someone else's, and you're not sure you can believe the thoughts inside your own head, check out rebootspodcast.com forward slash change. I'll send you one of my favorite journaling techniques for slaying that two-headed dragon of self-doubt and perfectionism. That's it. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom.